This week on the Weekly Havoc, we cannot help but dive into the meaning of Afghanistan, what it means for Afghanistan, what it means for us. Obviously, this was a rough week for everybody, but I put together, or Charlie Faint put together for us a great panel of guests. Um, I didn't notice this. I, I didn't note this during the show, but actually two of them are not actual Havoc Journal people. That's that's a first for us, but incredibly worthwhile. Dr. Paul D. Miller joined us and Dr. Alice Atalanta, who of course is a Havoc Journal writer, joined us, as well as G, which is the pseudonym we're using for an NSW operator with 20 years on active duty and 12 combat deployments. Uh, that was great to hear from all three of them. There was a lot to chew over. Um, as I say, many weeks, there was no way we were going to do a complete justice in the space of an hour, but I think we hit some significant pillars of our involvement in Afghanistan and chewed through uh, a lot of those issues, um, to mix a metaphor, on, on what our time in Afghanistan should mean and does mean. We also couldn't help but touch on the civ-mill divide aspects of this, which I know is something we, we do touch on often, but let's be honest. When vets are as outnumbered as they are in the civilian population, it's go, it's you know it's a subject worth diving into, and I do think that uh, it plays a large role in the story of Afghanistan, especially the story of our withdrawal. But anyway, you guys judge for yourselves. I promise uh, this will be a dynamite episode uh, for those that care about Afghanistan and want to understand more about why we were there and what we accomplished there. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal, try to make a little order out of chaos. Dr. Paul D. Miller is Professor of the Practice of International Affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He is the co-chair of the Global Politics and Security Concentration in the MSFS program. He's a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. He served as director for Afghanistan and Pakistan on the National Security Council staff. He worked as an intelligence analyst for the Central Intelligence Agency. He was also a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army. He is the author of American Power and Liberal Order, a conservative internationalist grand strategy. He is also the author of Armed State Building, where he examined the history and strategy of stability operations. And his next book is tentatively titled Just War and Ordered Liberty which reinterprets the just war traditions in light of contemporary security challenges. He previously taught at the University of Texas at Austin and the National Defense University, as well as working at the Rand Corporation. His writing has appeared in Foreign Affairs, Survival, Presidential Studies Quarterly, the Journal of Strategic Studies, Orbis, the American Interest, the National Interest, the World Affairs Journal, Small Wars and Insurgencies, and he is a contributing editor of the Texas National Security Review as well as several other publications. He holds a PhD in international relations and a BA in government from Georgetown University, as well as a master's in public policy from Harvard University. Paul, I'm sure at some point you will get your life together and find something to do. Thanks for having me on the show. Hey, it's our pleasure, really. And as I told him before, he also, I, I, I 
stumbled onto his writing in my inbox this week because I'm a subscriber at the dispatch and he wrote an incredibly articulate and powerful and important piece, which we will link to in the show notes. And I'm sure we'll talk about during the episode. G is the pseudonym of a current Naval Special Warfare's operator. He has spent 20 years in active duty, 12 combat deployments, four in Afghanistan, three in Iraq, five in other locations. He attended two years of college and lived abroad in South America for two years prior to joining the Navy. And we are thrilled to have him on. Gee, thanks a million for being here, brother. Yeah, great to be here. Hope I have a valuable contribution to make to the conversation. Yeah, no, I think I think that's safe to say you will. Um, I, we'll get into that a, a little bit more because I do want to get into uh, some of the personal stories. If for no other reason than uh, Paul is probably, I think this is probably his fifth or sixth podcast this week, so he's probably bored talking policy. So I think uh, opening our veins a little bit and talking about some of our our personal takeaways from Afghanistan will be important. But before we get there, Dr. Alice Atalanta is a writer, consultant, and keynote speaker specializing in work with the military and special operations community. Her previous books include Navigating Chaos with Jeff Boss, a former Navy SEAL, and Meditations of an Army Ranger with Lieutenant Colonel J.C. Glick. She currently has two books in the works with two different Green Berets, the legendary Doc Pete Chambers, um, and she is also working with Kevin Filk. That's right. Filk. I'm pronouncing that right. Flake. 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 Yeah. Flake. Flake? Flick? Flake. Flake. Mm-hmm. Okay. My, uh, <laughs> all right. We got that sorted out. All right. I'm glad. Uh, he was shot. He relearned to walk. He graduated from Harvard and MIT and is now running the Boston Marathon with Tom Brady's TB12 team. So two really interesting books. More about those Later, she writes extensively for Havoc Journal, and her essay, We Are the Useful Idiots, was article of the year at Havoc in 2020. Alice, welcome back to the Weekly Havoc. Love to be here. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. We had a great time last time, and I think, um, you know, it. this is one of those bittersweet uh, reunions, Alice. You know, it's great to have people back on. It's great to talk with everybody and touch base and pick everybody's brains this week fucking sucked. Uh, this was not the week. Uh, this was not the basis of the conversations I wanted to have. It wasn't the basis of what I thought our subject was going to be this week. But I want to start off first. Um, Paul, I'd like to start with you about the meaning of Afghanistan and specifically what did Afghanistan mean to you? I'll preface that and give you a chance to think just by saying you've done an awful lot of work around Afghanistan for an awfully long time. So especially when I fail and become more of a user than a dealer on social media and take in and onboard a lot of stupidity that I'm seeing out there from people that just started following events in Afghanistan in the past week, um, it it takes a lot of self-control not to react to that. Uh, so set the table for us. How does that, what does Afghanistan personally mean to you? Personally, yeah. That's a interesting and kind of a tough question, and it's very hard to put into words. And thank you, by the way, for having me on the show, and, and thanks for this question, because it's actually not one I've gotten this week. Um, you know, we can talk about what it means uh, for our country, our national security, our protection against terrorists, and maybe even um, our, our country's ideals and, and whatnot. What it means for me personally, um, you know, when I, when I got 
the phone call. I was an army reservist at the time. I was very excited to go. I was glad to be there and be available, be in uniform, be ready to serve the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember you, we've all seen all the World War II movies, right? You march off to war, you fight the good war, you come home, and it's a bonding experience for an entire generation. And for the rest of your lives, you can like, you got that camaraderie and every, everybody pitched in, everybody did their part. Everybody was part of the good war and you, you fought the good fight and, and you won. That's what I wanted. That's what I expected because Afghanistan, you know, in 2001, 2002, it was the good war. Everybody supported it. Um, the uh, the sort of the well-wishing and the, and the love from friends and family as I was going was heartwarming and encouraging and it was exciting. And uh, to watch the slow descent over 20 years and the disinterest um, was, it was very hard. It was gut-wrenching. And then to watch it end this way, um, it, it's that, that dream of, of, it, of it being the good war that we all fought together, like that's gone, you know? It's, you, you can't, I can't look at it that way. It's not a happy experience or a happy memory or a satisfying, it really feels like the way it ended has been an abandonment of what we fought for, a, a cheapening of our service, a, um, a betrayal of our sacrifice. You know, I, I, I've, I've said this too many times that, um, you know, it, it, the tone of my voice might sound a bit calm, but believe me that the emotion is there. Uh, it, it feels like a, a, a knife to the gut. Um, so that's what it has meant and what I wanted it to mean and what it's turned out to mean in the end. And it's just very difficult to see the, 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 the dream transform into this. Gee, in your four deployments to Afghanistan, were they back to back? Was there a time lapse between them so you could see how the country was morphing over each deployment? Yeah, so there was time in between. You know, we do a training and deployment cycle. So you're deployed for a certain period of time, four months or six months, and then you come home and you train for nine months or a year and then you redeploy. So really, those four deployments to Afghanistan came over a period of about five or six years. Okay. So yeah, you get to watch some changes go on. Um, but that was pretty concentrated. You know, that was a pretty concentrated bunch of deployments then. It was, it was pretty concentrated and it was sort of right in the middle, right in the thick of, you know, between 08, 09 to about 2015. And so, yeah, you, uh, I think Paul nailed it when he said not just the, the sort of steady decline and, and watching the things that are happening over there and sort of the idea that we should be turning over, you know, by my third deployment, I think to Afghanistan, we're already talking about, Hey, we need to be winding down, wrapping up operations. We need to be looking at an end game here. And then to come home and what you see stateside was, uh, like Paul mentioned, was this decline in interest. You know, people aren't talking about it anymore. The support is still sort of vaguely there, this idea that there's still troops in Afghanistan, but nobody's really talking about it. Um, You know, and it was not necessarily disheartening. I think that's just something that you have to expect after 15 or 16, 17 years. I mean, the longest time that this country has been engaged in steady conflict in any one area of operations, there's fatigue. There's fatigue amongst the troops. There's fatigue amongst the leadership. There's this sense of we're still spending a lot of money and we're still losing lives. What are we still doing there? Uh, Are we still making a difference? And I think you feel that on all fronts. So, G, when I ask you the same question that I asked Paul, what does Afghanistan mean to you? 
does it feel sort of like that this is a long, that this is a breakup that's been going on for a while and it's just, and you're just kind of emotionally over it and burned out or did, does Afghanistan mean something different than that to you now? Yeah, Chris, I think it's a mixed bag. <clears throat> you know, I came in immediately after 9-11 and 9-11 was sort of the reason that I signed up. So it, there's obviously a deep personal meaning there. You go over a handful of times, you know, you, you lose friends along the way. Obviously, um, you have some pretty significant incidents that have happened. The the extortion crash in 2011 comes to mind, the, you know, 31 heroes. And, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people lost along the way. So it takes on a more personal meeting in terms of like the friends that I've buried and, and the interpreters we worked with and stuff that are left behind. So I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, like I say, mixed emotions, I think there's, you know, you definitely, we felt from the military side, or at least speaking for myself, there's definitely a sense of like, hey, are we still making the contribution that we need to make? At some point, we need to be handing this over. Ultimately, the end game is we need to train the Afghanis up so they can take control of their own country and be in charge. And I think what we're seeing now is that we did a lot of that for the entire time that I was over there. Like I said, between 08 and 2016, that was the main focus was incorporating the partner unit, getting them trained up, getting them capable of taking care of themselves. And then to see it get fumbled at the five yard line, you know, when you're so close to that, to that finish and not just fumbled, but I mean, fumbled so badly and botched so, so entirely. Uh, And then to see that, that, uh, that failure on that scale is now endangering American lives, endangering the lives of the people that we worked with as partners over there, the people who were, you know, you hear the, the interpreters that we worked with and all those kind of people putting lives in jeopardy unnecessarily. Um, you know, we had 20 years to figure out an end game and, and we still dropped the ball. Hey, so I, I'd love to ask a question there if I could, Please. G, because um, you worked, sounds like, with the Afghan troops, um, at a, you know, more personal level than I did. Uh, and what I've been saying all week to all the media is that the Afghan army stood and fought for 10 years. They lost 60,000 troops in combat. They did fight. They collapsed this spring when we pulled the plug, when President Biden made his announcement, when we pulled out the last of our train advised assist mission, particularly when we pulled out the, the air cover. That's what really caused it, caused a, a collapse of their morale. Um, Am I right? Am I wrong? What, what do you make of it? Is that the is that the right story to tell, or do you have a different one to tell about how and why the Afghan army stopped fighting these last few weeks? No, I think that's definitely you know not to oversimplify anything because obviously there's infinite complexity and in why something like this happens. But I I think those are the the large points, right? Yes, they did they did fight. They fought capably. They fought side by side with us. You know, there was this push when I first went over there. We were conducting almost unilateral operations, and as we went you know, it was like, we're slowly but surely handing it over to them to where eventually we're just trying to be essentially like a, an advise and assist role while they go in, they're on target. They're the ones who are taking the fight to the enemy. But ultimately what you see is, you know, even in the look ahead, even back at 2014, 2015, we're saying what happens when we take away these ISR platforms? What happens when we take away close air support? What happens when we take away uh, an American QRF force that's coming from a base that's located nearby. What happens when we take away a lot of this funding and the training and the constant cycle of like, we're always here handholding. And I think you saw that in large measure. And I think there's an, an aspect of it that is, uh, you know, you hear about, 
uh, Ghani, uh, President Ghani, Ashraf Ghani, not supporting his troops with uh, the money that they needed and the food that they needed, which obviously is demoralizing to uh, a you know, a group of fighting element that's been so well supported by the Americans over so many years. But certainly it's also demoralizing to know, hey, we don't have overhead air coverage. We don't have a, a capable American quick reaction force to come and rescue us if something happens. Also, we don't have now the financial or or material backing of our own president. Uh, and, and that combined with uh, Biden pulling out as sort of unceremoniously just saying, hey, we're done. See ya. Um, I think was, you know, they're just they folded like a deck of cards, you know. So I'm going to do a very unhost like thing and um, also tackle that question if I can, Paul, because um, it's a great question. And I, it's one that I think a lot of Americans fail to recognize. Um, as I told you guys before the show, I was there this time last year. Um, my, my last or one of the places I was at was um, the uh, ANASOC, the Afghan Commando uh, Training Center. And I think the first point that's worth making is that ANASOC um, and the ANA as a whole was deeply affected by COVID. Um, not necessarily just the disease itself, although there was that, um, but the fact that our COVID followed right behind the reduction in violence initiative that Trump launched in February of 2020. So we went from a reduction in violence, which was about a week or two weeks, I can't remember now, stand down, uh, into officially trying to work through the peace process, quote unquote, with the Taliban in Doha. And while that was while that transition was happening, COVID became a thing. And as a result, we were now suddenly all those TAA assets, all those trained advise assist for those that don't know that acronym, uh, assets. And, and, and efforts that America was pushing forward to keep the Afghans at the tip of the spear and make sure that they were the ones executing the missions. All those suddenly became the Afghans doing it largely on their own. Now, we were there. They had air support and all the rest of it. But, they, um, but already the exit plan as far in the, that I could see in the Afghans' mind was underway because with COVID, it showed they, – they didn't care about COVID. They were willing to get COVID and go back out. They're like, our, our biggest threat's the Taliban, not COVID. We'll keep fighting. Um, ours wasn't, and not debating that, it just wasn't. And we stood behind the, the fence and we waved to them and they would go on missions and come back and they would have a lot less people with them. Over time, it's unavoidable that in a country as highly leveraged as Afghanistan, the Afghans were going to start making peace with who they had to make peace with to execute their operations or just on a personal level, find a way to survive. And if that was going back to their tribal roots, if that meant that the Tajiks would start to look towards Iran for help, or if it meant that the Pashtuns would look towards Pakistan for help, whatever it meant, you start finding your exit plan because the writing was very much on the wall that we were leaving. And COVID really precipitated that in my experience. That That's just fascinating. I had... I didn't know the COVID part of that story. That's really uh, helpful to know that. I, I, I just throw that there again. I'm, I'm, I'm stepping out of my host role, but, um, but I just wanted to throw that piece out. Alice, I want to shift to you. Uh, you are an exceptional civilian. And by that, I mean, not just that you're great, although I do mean that also, but I also mean you, you're 
deeply embedded and deeply intertwined with the military and special operations community. So Afghanistan, you could find Afghanistan on a map. This was, uh, this was not a foreign, a, a completely foreign entity to you, right. but nonetheless, as a civilian, what, and, and I, I'm setting you up because I already read your article on this, but when you're looking at civilian comments and people that weren't tracking Afghanistan until 10 minutes ago, um, coming into it, what did Afghanistan mean to you emotionally? What did that mean to you as somebody that's been an ad, a, a veteran advocate? How had you interpreted Afghanistan? And then looking at it through the civilian lens, what were civilians not understanding about Afghanistan? It's difficult um, because I'm in a, I think, really unique position because of some of the work I do. You know, in addition to the books I do, I also work with some nonprofit organizations in the special operations community that put me one-on-one with people who've really been through some really dark things. And that's why they rely on the assistance of those organizations. And um, when I'm linked up with those people, it often means that, you know, I've got an hour, two hours, sometimes the call could go three or four hours if it, if we get into it, where somebody's pouring out their heart to me and telling me about the worst day of their life. And, and you know, it's things where I'll see that same organization share a memorial of a soldier who just passed, like George Banner was one that the Green Beret Foundation shared this week. And my mind went back to a call that I had at 1.30 in the morning in Florida with Casey in in the Pacific Northwest telling me about the traumas and, and losing his best friend, George, and what that was about and, and the aftermath that he's still dealing with today with his family. Um, so as a civilian and as a female and being privy to conversations that I think, you know, our war fighters usually keep very close to the vest and, and, and within that community, um, it makes it feel like I have a very personal stake in what's going on because I, I have an emotional stake in what's going on. Um, if that makes sense when I know personally and I'm close with, gold star wives and, and children who have been left behind, um, friends and family members, like who, who, you know, Dom Rosso is one who jumps out. He's someone that I've trained with a lot and become close friends with, but Dom's entire life mission is about uh, honoring the passing of guys like Adam Brown and his teammates on extortion. Um, so for me as a civilian, I think, uh, it's very difficult to not get emotional about what's happening in Afghanistan. Um, I've been on the phone all week with um, Johnny Walker, the the Iraqi interpreter who came, worked with the SEAL teams and, and they were able to get him here. But just, again, that's somebody who, who's been in this, who, when I talk to him, it's, it's not necessarily about even politics or details. It's about patriotism and what America means to him and his family and what he believed in and what he sees we're at stake of losing right now if we flub up Afghanistan as badly as we have. Um, the hope that America stood for to him when he was a, in Iraq trying to get out and trying to help his family um, and how he perceives that uh, the American ideal could be dying in the eyes of many Afghans who stood beside us. Um, that's, yeah. yeah. No, 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 that's, that's great. And you're setting me up well for the next place I wanted to go with this. And mm-hmm. gee, I think I want to start with you on this. Um, because as an active duty service member, I'm interested to know your level of visibility on this, but t- 
to me, the story of Afghanistan this week and the way it's played out in America is the story of the civilian military divide in this country. That um, it just seems to me that none of this happens with a population that is tracking and engaged in the story. And I don't blame the American people for not being engaged. As you said, fatigue is understandable after 20 years of, of war. And I don't mean fatigue like civilians are actually physically tired of it, obviously. Um, but just the the and any story about Afghanistan goes in one year and out the other. But I do think um, politicians follow the lead of the people. And if the people don't care about it, Politicians don't, and by that I mean the White House and any White House, would have very little interest in talking about Afghanistan or spending a lot of bandwidth thinking about exit plans or, or, or contingencies or second and third order effects because it's not something that the American public is demanding. To your mind, how – well, let me back up. To your mind, what is the one thing, if you could sit down your average low-information voter or or detached civilian and tell them one thing that they should know about Afghanistan, what would that one thing be? Oh, man, that's a <clears throat> I think there's so much to tell in the story. You know, it, it's um, I think one of the one of the big issues that I have with the way that things happened this week and with the way that we pulled out and, and you know, some of the to some of the stuff that Alice said with about Johnny Walker and sort of this sort of idea that these Afghanis had built up in their mind of the American dream and, and what it means and that sort of dying because of the way that we left them behind. I think we as a nation took a huge hit in credibility uh, because of the way that we pulled out. And, you know, it's like I grew up hearing about Vietnam, obviously, but Vietnam conflict ended a few years before I was born. But I grew up hearing about that and sort of how there was this diminished credibility on the world stage of America in other countries' eyes, because essentially, not only was it the first major conflict that we didn't really win, we sort of didn't decisively lose, we just left, but also because we sort of abandoned, you know, they were overrunning Saigon as we're pulling out. Then you had this very visceral moment of the helicopter flying off, and obviously the comparisons were made this week. I think we took a big hit in worldwide credibility, and you and you already have sort of this idea that Taiwan now is hearing, "Hey, right. the USA doesn't have your back anymore." I think if uh, you know, if I was going to tell somebody that they needed to know one thing about Afghanistan, it's that you know there are a whole lot of really good people, people who want freedom, people who want democracy people who have this idea that after 20 years of America being there, that they were sort of going to have a slice of that pie. And the way that we left and sort of the deal with the devil that we struck with the Taliban uh, robbed them of that, you know, in large measure. And and I think people should know that, I you know, I think uh, just to remind them, hey, this conflict has been ongoing for 20 years. And by abandoning it, you don't just abandon uh, you know, the money and the lives and everything that was spent on that. You also abandoned a very real population of people who wanted freedom, who were longing for democracy and, and free elections and these other kind of things. And they're right back to, uh, you know, suppression of women's rights and no free speech and don't leave your house and all these other kind of things. And, and it's like uh, essentially, you know, right back to square one in a very literal sense of like, that's how it was when I first went over there 20 years ago, you know? So it's, uh, it's hard to see. It's hard to watch that. It's, it's interesting. Just as a data point, I'll throw out there 
<clears throat> one of the uh, villages I was in, you could buy a house there now for, I think it was 150,000 US. That's how much property values had risen. Just as a, for those that care about economics and, and measurables, that's a hell of a metric uh, to show how much of a difference and how much safety and confidence in the market Afghans were feeling that they could put, plop down that kind of money for a house. Paul, I'm going to ask you the same thing, but with a bit of a wider scope. How important is the civ mill divide in not just determining the outcome, but in understanding and preventing anything like this debacle happening again? The civil mill divide. You mean like um, how civilians versus military leaders view America's role in the world? Thanks for making me clarify. What I mean is um, the when you have so few that are in the military, yeah. um, a lot of their concerns don't translate to the civilian population. And yeah. as a result, there's that lack of understanding. Um, that's what I mean by that. Yeah. I think that the military officer corps does tend to be more globally, more aware of America's uh, global influence and role in the world. That's my sense. And um, especially since they have to go through their advanced education and so many go and get master's degrees, they uh, begin to understand more of the interconnectedness between the United States and its allies and the way that the U.S. Uh, provides the overhead and the architecture for a lot of kind of world order among among the free world. Um, civilians don't always understand that. Uh, now I teach them in my classes. Um, but what I found, and uh, uh, with apologies to any of my students, past or present who are listening, is that many um, are functional pacifists. Uh, what I mean is that uh, they believe that there is essentially no... Um, value to be gained by using military force for much of anything. They've only seen examples of sort of failure within their lifetimes. And the, if I push them on it, of course they'll say World War II was justified. So they're not pure pacifists, but that's it. Like if there's actual real Nazis, they'll agree to use military force. <laughs> Aside from that, it seems many of the civilians, not just speaking to my students here, um, have a reflexive aversion uh, to the military and that leads to a, I think, naive understanding of essentially how the world works and how diplomacy works, right? I'm of the view that um, force and diplomacy are hand in glove, they go together. Uh, you have to be ready to use a bit of saber rattling, a bit of coercion, um, uh, throw your weight around a little bit if you want to be effective at the negotiating table. Right, which is exactly what we didn't do with the Taliban over the past several years. Uh, we we withdrew the the saber. We <laughs> we we sent it back home while we were trying to negotiate. And that just doesn't work, right? So I, I I don't know if I'm answering your question there. I do think that there's a difference in maybe kind of worldview or understanding of the role of force and America's role in the world. Uh, and I and I, I am I am concerned that maybe the civilian leadership uh, their view of the world is a little bit uninformed about the realities of, of what we've been doing for the past 80 years, yeah. uh, we America and we the, the the military specifically. I could not agree more. And you segued perfectly for me to just briefly, I'm not going to, we don't have to spend any time on this because this is a lot of white noise that's about to come out here. But I wanted to, I, I summed up kind of a bunch of the tropes that I was hearing on social media 
uh, to your point about uh, the functional pacifists that believe nothing is worth war, um, there was things I heard from, uh, hey, we're just as bad as the Russians were. We never should have gone to Afghanistan. We don't even know why we were in Afghanistan. It wasn't worth it. The Afghans never wanted us there. Uh, we failed in Afghanistan. Uh, the threat of Al-Qaeda is now non-existent, so there's no point in us being there. Uh, hey, the, you can't you can't have endless wars. You know the war's gone on for too long, and I'm we don't have to deal with all of them. But I want to go to that last point first because I've heard that probably the most, probably we all have, um, the endless war rhetoric. And my glib response to that is that it's a good thing that we only fought the Nazis for three and a half years because if we'd had to fight them for twenty, we probably would have heard things like, "Well, Nazism is bad, but you can't change German culture." Or, you know, German problems need German solutions. Or why are we even fighting? You know, are we just doing this for the Jews, the gypsies, and the gays? You know, and obviously the point being that the timeline is secondary to the threat. And as long as the threat remains, there's no point talking about the timeline. And that I think is one of the things that I think, in my opinion, the civilian population has been is just completely missed and doesn't seem to understand. Alice, I want to throw that to you, though. How does that sound to you? Does that sound like – do you think the civilian population needs to hear that? Or is there something even more pressing that they need to pick up on? Well, because I'm a civilian, I think I'm at liberty to be a little more harsh with the rest of the civilian population than you gentlemen are because you represent something. Um, and and as representatives of the institutions or as the military that, that you do represent um, – you know, you might be in a bit of a different position, but I don't have a lot of empathy for the civilians who let this slide, who didn't allow this to inform their votes, who didn't choose to make the war their business, who didn't choose as American citizens to have the wherewithal to occupy themselves with the realities of what our nation faces abroad, to look at the academic notions of masculinity we have that we allow to inform our foreign policy that don't realistically confront the real challenges of dominance that we face internationally in terms of male leaders that basically get into gigantic pissing contests on an, on an international stage. Um, as a product of the humanities in academia, of an Ivy League school surrounded with the supposed best and brightest, I rant constantly about what I saw there, just in terms of the self-righteous conviction that came out of the people I studied with um, regarding the way they thought the world should work and these utopian ideas that we know aren't real, the push for Marxism, the love of Hegelian power dynamics and things that people were you know, using to, to build a worldview that's completely unrealistic and doesn't, doesn't conform to what we know to be true about human nature. So to my fellow civilians um, today with what I'm seeing, I'm, I'm really enraged when I look at folks I know in my inner circle who, especially the more moderate folks, even in my own family and my inner circle, who were kind of these swing votary types and would say, why would you support someone like Trump and, and such a warmonger and his, and his violent rhetoric and these things? And we want a decent, I kept hearing the word decent, you know, moms in the, in the carpool line using the word decent president. And, and they were looking for decency. And I was standing there thinking to myself, is our memory so short that we don't remember Daniel Pearl? That is our, is our uh, interest in the war so, so limited that, that, 
that we that we need to be reminded of the savagery of these terrorist organizations. And this applies to the southern border, too, by the way, as I have colleagues that are down there working and telling me night after night about, you know, the severed heads the cartels are leaving laying around. It's not a joke. These people are crossing our open borders and we don't have a voting public that seems to be concerned with concerning themselves with these things. Instead, they want to talk about if someone uses the wrong pronoun to address them. And they're they're I'm sorry to just keep ranting, but that mirror no, no, is so IS. skewed. And yeah. I, as a civilian, I can say that to the other civilians. Just I want to shake people. So let me let me throw out there. I was I wasn't going to um, throw that out because that leads us down a whole different path. But I'll, I'll I will say that's the other big thing I've seen is that is the um, the partisan way that this is broken down. And I've noticed that the civilian population seems to be scrambling to figure out how this situation fits in their political binary. And I think what's made people very uncomfortable is the fact that, look, Trump started this and I squawked about it in to, you know, uh, people that I was face to face with, uh, nothing on social media or anything like that. But I, I was livid about it when this reduction in violence happened and when the Doha peace talks happened. And, um, I, blame Biden for not being smart enough to cut and run from that and reverse course. And I think what a lot of people are struggling with now is they don't understand that two things can be true at once. Both Biden and Trump can be wrong about something. And it doesn't, you know, the politics is downstream from that. How you voted is downstream from that. We have morons that cross political boundaries and we need to grow up and realize that two things can be true at once. Mm -hmm. Am I being uncharitable or am I missing something, Paul? No, I I completely agree. And if we want to be very fair, I would go all the way back to the beginning of the Afghan war and I can narrate for you how all four administrations really screwed this up. Uh, I think that President Bush was wrong to, and I worked for Bush and for Obama on the NSC staff. I think President Bush was wrong to adopt a, a pretty light footprint and try to outsource some of the state building stuff to the Europeans. That was a huge mistake. It let a security vacuum open up in the provinces, and that is what allowed the Taliban to come back, right? That's what started the insurgency in the first place. And then I'll place a lot of blame on President Obama. He had the outlines of pretty good strategy in place, and then he undermined the whole thing with his pre-announced withdrawal timetable. And that was, I think, maybe the single most catastrophic decision of the war, uh, because we, we actually came pretty close to a more satisfactory conclusion under his watch. And he's the one, I think, that snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, and then, of course, Trump signs that deal and Biden implements it. All four presidents, four bad decisions, it, it, two Republicans, two Democrats. I think that's a pretty serious indictment of our political culture, our, our two-party system. Uh, I tell you, I'm fed up with it. I, 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 I'm i registered independent now uh, and have been for five years because I just can't find a way to see eye to eye with any of the two major parties uh, on sort of a even even sixty or seventy percent of the issues, I just can't. Um, so, Paul, there, if, there's my partisan rant. <laughs> if, if you ever come back on the show, Paul, you and I cannot be on the show together because only one of us can say the same things. I, I, I'm just going to be <laughs> redundant. Um, now, listen, I, I want to, uh, gee, I want to go to you for for the future. Now, um, we don't need to rehash and re and and examine and do forensics on what's going on there right now. I think that's relatively clear. But let's talk about the future and what Afghanistan means for both our future and what's what's going on over there means for Afghans Afghanistan's future. 
If I may, can I, can I backtrack to actually the last question? I just want to touch oh, yeah, on it. Sure. it, it oh, yeah. Uh, no, go ahead. Yeah. Diverging a little bit from the more political aspects of it, and I agree with everything that <clears throat> Paul and Alice both said about the, the, you know, people being wrong on both sides, all four administrations doing things that were, uh, you know, led to, uh, you know, the eventual outcome of it. But if you go back to what you said about us being fortunate to only have to fight the Nazis for three and a half years, you know, the reason we only had to fight the Nazis for three and a half years was because the way warfare was conducted was so brutal and so violent, so unpalatable. Uh, you know, in large measure, you take the media out of it, the people on the home front don't really know exactly the full measure of the atrocity that's going on in these places. Uh, and, you know, you have the U.S. doing things like carpet bombing Dresden, yeah. carpet bombing Tokyo, dropping atomic bombs. You have the Battle of Stalingrad in, in which people are cannibalizing each other, eating horses and doing these terrible things. The nature of war is unpalatable. It's terrible. You know, war is hell, uh, as the saying goes. So, you know, you have these these uh, sort of diverging opinions, right? You can either have a war that goes on and on and on is surgically precise and we do everything we can to mitigate civilian casualty and make it as palatable as possible to the public on the home front, but it's going to take 20 years and probably have a disastrous outcome. Or you can go over there, you can be decisive, you can be destructive, you can fight a war the way that war is typically fought and you can end a war shorter with the less human life expenditure and less financial expenditure. Um, but you know, the public is probably going to see some pretty terrible things. That's true, Paul. I'm sorry. Let me just jump in really quick. That's true. But I think it's also important to look at the flip side of that, which is we can also fight a war for 20 years and lose a total of less than a 10th of what we lost on D day alone because of that. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is that never in the history of the world of warfare, whatever, uh, have you had one, have you had two opposing sides and one was so technologically yeah. uh, and financially outmatched. And at the end of the day, you look at this conflict and you say, well, the Taliban came back to power. So it, it, in, a, in a microcosm, not to oversimplify, but they won yeah. Yeah. Uh, by outweighing us, right? Uh, and why is that? Did we not have the capability to go in and scorched earth and, and essentially, you know, I know it's there's more complexity and, uh, you know, the, the whole worldview of it. And, and uh, there's things that we couldn't have done. We were constrained to a certain amount. But to some extent, we constrained ourselves and, and we made it take longer than it needed to 100%. Now, if you look at the way ahead, uh, you know, we're circling back to Afghanistan. Obviously, this isn't the first time you talk about the Russians being over there in, you know, in the 80s. And you talk about, I mean, it's the graveyard of empires for a reason, right? It always circles back. There's always somebody trying to leverage themselves into a position of power in Afghanistan. And now I think with us pulling back, the Taliban taking power, the Chinese are obviously already trying to negotiate themselves into a position where they can exploit some of the mineral resources and, uh, uh, you know, trade routes and whatever else you have going through there. Um, the, beyond just strategic partnerships, right, with uh, right. trying to get themselves uh, ingratiated with the Afghanis and leverage that, uh, you know, with the against India or however they right. want to manipulate that. Right. Um, so it's really hard to say that there's a good solid outlook for what America's place, what the United States position should be with Afghanistan going forward. Um, because it's uncertain, right? You're, you're back to that. Um, there is certainly going to be, I think if you look ahead the very real threat of terrorism being 
sort of housed in Afghanistan again, the way it yep. was in the late 90s and early 2000s. I think that's something that's an immediate concern for us. But I think long-term concern, you have to look at uh, China and what they're trying to do over there. Obviously, they're leveraging their position worldwide with their Belt and Road Initiative. And, uh, you know, there's some things that we need to prevent them from doing in Afghanistan that they've been able to do in large measure in Africa and some of these other uh, third world countries. So, Paul, I'm going to shift to you and I'm going to preface this by saying I think a lot of people, hopefully not anybody in a position of power, <clears throat> but I think a lot of Americans fail to recognize that Afghanistan hosts, I, I don't know the exact percentage, but an overwhelming number of Sunni terror groups, if not all in some form or another, and borders every single significant geopolitical enemy that we have. It is an incredibly key piece of property with an awful lot of uh, access to, uh, uh, to bad guys. Does that affect the outlook for Afghanistan? Does that affect us? How do you see the outlook for Afghanistan and us going forward? Yeah, a good set of questions there. Um, if I can rewind just a bit before I tackle that question, I kind of wanted to respond and, and maybe disagree a little bit with G. There was this big debate after Vietnam that's kind of similar to what G was saying, um, that we lost because we didn't fight hard enough, we constrained ourselves, our rules of engagement, we tied our hands, uh, and we were fighting too much like gentlemen. We should have, you know, glassed the place. Um, I, I want to disagree because uh, let's compare World War One with World War Two both total wars. And we actually won both of them. We lost the peace for the first and we won the peace in the second. That I think actually says quite a lot about why they turned out differently. Uh, it's not about whether you fight all out or not. That's not the key variable. You can fight all out, win the war, still lose the peace, uh, as we did in World War I. What really matters is, can you win the war and then establish conditions for lasting stability, justice, and peace? That's a, that's a really key part of this in a unconventional war, a, a guerrilla war, a counterinsurgency like Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam, you're doing it at the same time. You're trying to fight the war and establish the peace simultaneously. Super hard thing to do. It's not about fighting unconstrained because that actually could be self-defeating, right? You f that's what we did in Vietnam from 65 to 68, and it didn't work. Uh, it's about um, fighting uh, the bad guys in a targeted way while also trying to facilitate peace and re reconstruction for everybody. Very hard thing to do, but that's, I think, what we fail at. It's not about trying to fight all out and, and just, you know, be as unconstrained as possible. So, okay, then, so that, that rant yes. is over. No, no. So then with that, then that segues perfectly into then what is the outlook? Considering this is how we're winding down Afghanistan, yeah. Yeah. what does this mean going forward? Yeah. Yeah. So, so to get to your question, Chris, uh, yes, I think Afghanistan is a valuable, you know, uh, uh, square on the geopolitical checkerboard. I think that's a, that's a true statement. We just gave it away. We gave away Bagram, gave away Kabul. Uh, we gave away a, a very valuable um, intelligence platform, a reconnaissance surveillance platform in South Central Asia, kind of all of Asia, borders Pakistan, borders Iran. It's pretty close to Russia. It's pretty close to India. It's, it actually borders China too. Well, most people don't know that. It does border China. Um, the the U-2 plane uh, that was flying recon flights over the Soviet Union that got shot down in 1960 took off from Peshawar in Pakistan, mm, right? Yeah. That's how valuable this region of the world is to us. And we've been using it actually for decades and decades. And now we, again, gave away a big uh, piece of that. Um, 
Afghanistan does. You're correct. South Asia is the headquarters of the global jihadist movement. It's not the Middle East. I think most people think it's, you know, like Iraq or something. And it actually isn't. Uh, most Middle Eastern terrorism stays within the Middle East. It's actually the AFPAC borderlands that is the headquarters for transnational global jihadist groups. Al-Qaeda, most importantly, which does still exist. But you got the Islamic State, you got Lashkar-e Taiba, you got the Pakistani Taliban, and on and Hezbi Islami, you got a, you got a murderer's row of jihadist groups that are all right there. They spent the last 20 years running and hiding because of our special forces, our drones, our airstrikes. They're not running and hiding anymore. They have safe haven. It's not a risk, it's a reality. They are reconstituting. There is it's September 10th, 2001. Today. Yeah. Today yeah. is September 10th, 2001. Yeah. They have the operational space to train, recruit, fundraise, and plan. And that terrifies me. It's going to be uh, slightly more under the radar than it was 20 years ago. The Taliban's not dumb. They're going to keep it a bit more quiet. Um, and our homeland security is better. Like, let, let's, let's acknowledge that, take some comfort from that. But the international environment today in 2021 is worse than it was 20 years ago. And it's not just Kabul. Look, this is yeah. one straw on the camel's back, and someday that camel's back is going to break, the camel being world order. And when that happens, when that camel's broken, uh, the fall of Kabul on retrospect will be one more straw that breaks that camel's back. And I'm again, I'm terrified where this leads. We're allowing the free world to erode. We're allowing uh, global authoritarianism to rise. And things like this, when Kabul falls and the United States and its allies are internationally publicly humiliated, uh, what do you think is, what kind of world are we building? Do you want to keep yeah. walking down this road? I don't. I want to walk down a different road. And uh, it seems to me like our decision makers have no idea what direction we're headed right now. There's no greater greater predictor of war than projecting weakness, I think. And, and to do this, everyone knows that we are not going to back ourselves up right now, that we are not willing to put our muscle where our mouths are. And I think that that leads to war. And I think that's that may very well be the legacy. And my prediction, and Alice, I'm going to throw this to you for your take, but my, my prediction is within three years, we will have to be back in Afghanistan because something's going to happen where we're going to go, oh, crap, there's a reason we were in Afghanistan in the first place. We forgot about that. And now we're going to have to go back in because um, I don't think you can leave that country without adult supervision. Alice, if that is the case, if I'm right, is that something that the American people are going to understand and be ready for and welcome? Or is it going to have to be such a momentous terror attack or such a, so, something that's so shocking that it mobilizes people in order for it to happen? And if it's not another 9-11, it's just people aren't going to respond to it. And the civilian population's going to glaze over and go, ah, no, we're done with Afghanistan. We already tried that once. I think it depends when we hit the tipping point with two factors. I mean, two things that I think really drive the way the civilian population behaves and the civilians that have the podium right now. Because if you look at the mainstream media and the people dominating the news channels and, and that narrative that they push out, where that narrative comes from, the whole college or die mindset where we're pumping our kids into academia, where they're getting overwhelmingly indoctrinated with only one mindset, only one viewpoint. We're putting those people out there. They think that they speak for everyone. Um, we have to look at where 
we are in that process. Is it going to reach a tipping point? Does it reach a tipping point? I think there are some voices that are trying to push back, looking for more balanced dialogue, even in elementary schools, middle schools, high schools across the country and universities. But we need to look at that because I think that needs to change or we need to see that shift before we see the evolution of an American population that has any reasonable grasp on the necessity of the things that Paul and G have been talking about that you've been talking about today, because unfortunately there's that factor. And then there's also the social media factor and just the mindless drivel of the TikTok and the whatever bullshit that people are pumping into their minds around the clock. Are people going to choose to engage with the real issues, the hard questions? Are they going to seek the answers from people that actually have skin in the game. And, you know, as someone, even in my position as a civilian, not in, not in the inner circle of this community, um, one thing that, that really strikes me even this week is how much digging I have to do to put my finger on the pulse of what's really going on. Because if I were to just listen to Biden's addresses, if I were to just listen to even the mainstream media's treatment of what's going on in Afghanistan versus the the people I see on my own inner circle, like Seth Yan, like Doc Pete, who are, you know, these are Green Berets who are part of working to get people safe. Guys that are saying, I haven't slept in three days because we're talking to people on the ground in Afghanistan right now. We're getting people out. How many civilians know that? And the other hard piece is how many civilians I know through my own circles that know who I am, know what I do. They know who I know. They know the credentials and the credibility of who I know. They know the people who confide in me. And even those people just drop a wall. They don't want to hear it. There's so much cognitive dissonance surrounding anything to do with this war because they or warfare in general. It's so much easier to think about what's going on at home to to, you know, choose the politics of your favorite celebrity or professional athlete. Yeah, that's what we're up against. No, totally. And I think it's funny because I was trying to Somebody asked, made the mistake of asking my opinion on how things were going in Afghanistan this week, and I, you know, kept them hostage for three hours. Um, but what I realized is it's kind of like somebody walking in in the last five minutes of Lord of the Rings and saying, "Oh, what's going on here?" And then you have to sum up the entire movie, you know, like in three sentences, and it's impossible to do. And as I say, I don't blame American, the average American, for not knowing that. They have lives. They, that's not their job. It is the job of the politicians that we elect to keep people's eyes focused on what they need to know about Afghanistan. But I think since Bush, we have had three straight presidents that have been determined to get us out of Afghanistan. Um, two of them made the critical mistake of ignoring the intelligence enough to actually do it. Um, but because nobody's heart was in this, the American public just hasn't been following this story. They ha- and, they're, and they're out of the loop and we're trying to catch them up at the last minute. I'm not so I'm empathetic gonna, to them. I've got to jump back in. I just I don't see it that way. I mean, this okay. week there was a headline on CNN. It literally I screenshot it. It said, who is the Taliban? Who is the Taliban? I if saw that. you don't know yeah. who the Taliban is, we've got a serious problem. Your vote counts as much as mine. So to me, that is a problem. And you know, when Kobe Bryant died, that was a piece that I published in Havoc Journal. It did great because I was saying to the American public, okay, you all just displayed the ability to empathize with the death of someone you don't know. So how come nobody knows? Let's look at extortion again, extortion 17. That's like the all-star team of our military. Those guys all died at once together. 
That to me is mind boggling. There is no excuse for it. That is your responsibility as American citizen. We are blessed to be living in this nation. Guys like Johnny Walker will drive that home every single day. How fortunate we are to be born here. You won the lottery. I heard a statistic this week that if you're earning $35,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the planet. And Americans that are earning more than that just on the government's dole think they've got it bad. I cannot sympathize with that. I think most American civilians need a slap in the face. I know you guys can't say it. I am happy to say it. And anybody that wants to take me on -on one-on-one and have that argument, I'll have it. I'll have it all day long. I'm going to throw that out to everybody. Uh, Not not to... Uh, get slapped in the face by Alice, but um, <laughs> if the, did somebody, I saw somebody else, or I thought I heard somebody else jumping in. Paul, yeah. is that you? Okay. Well, you know your analogy there about uh, hopping in the last five minutes of Lord of the Rings um, jogs something for me. You know, if you do, if you come in at the, at the movie at the right point, it looks hopeless. All looks lost. You don't really understand what the good guys are trying to do and what how the how the plan's going to work out. And so it drives me absolutely crazy when people, including the president, says. Um, this was inevitable, right? The debacle, the chaos, the loss, the war was already lost. It was going to end this way no matter what, whether five years or 10 years or 20 years more, it was inevitable. I just want to tear my hair out because it's plain that anybody who says that, including the president, really is not aware of the history of this war and the pockets of success, the slow, fitful, uneven progress we've been making here and there and how the Afghan army had been improving. Uh, like that's a true story. But then just to like walk in at, at, at the at the, at, at the 99 yard line and say, you know, we've lost. Yeah. Let's go home. Yeah. It's just, it absolutely drives me crazy. And it's a transparent effort by the president to avoid responsibility for the consequences of his choices. You know, he wants to say the buck stops here. I'm the decider. I made this decision. Right. But then he deflects blame for the consequences onto the Afghans, onto Congress, onto the allies, and it drives me crazy. He made this choice. He's got to own it. And he is responsible for the chaos of the past week. That's ongoing still today. And not to be, you know, and, and Trump is too, because he signed the deal and he wasted nine months not planning for this evacuation either. So like this is, this really drives me crazy. But good luck getting people to partner with us again, if, if this is the treatment they can expect, that they, yeah, get, yeah. they get the rug pulled out from under them and then they get blamed for not fighting back and being the cause of you know, how things turn out. I, now, with all that pessimism, I'm going to do my best to end on a semi-optimistic note. So, gee, what would be the best news you could possibly hear related to Afghanistan um, at this point, if in like the next couple of days? What would be something that you're like, okay, hey, there's a ray of light or hey, there's a 180 degree turnaround. What would be the best thing you could possibly hear? That might be the the most difficult question of this whole <laughs> podcast, right? Because it, it is, yeah. you know, like what Paul just said, we, we're coming into the movie, we're walking in right at that moment when all is lost, right? The, the orcs are overrunning, you know, the Middle Earth or whatever. And, uh, you know, we're, we're <laughs> to stick with the analogy, but, we're, you know, we're at that point where it's like, well, we pulled out and the Taliban's in charge and they're doing horrible things. And the administration doesn't seem to have an answer for and all these other things. And I think, you know, in large measure, I think the administration thought, hey, here's an easy political win. Yes. We're going to pull out. We're going to say we're the administration that ended the war. It's it's domestically, politically expedient, even though internationally it's a disaster. But they didn't expect to get it. And they stood up and said it. Right. They said they said the quiet part out loud. We didn't expect this to happen so fast. Meaning they expected it to happen, just not in 11 days. And they didn't think anybody was going to notice. And they didn't think anybody was going to notice because if it happened in six months or a year, slowly, province by province, you know, nobody notices. Eventually the Taliban's back in charge and everybody said, well, I saw that coming. 
Um, I think for me, you know, there were points of the negotiation. And again, I I think you essentially in negotiating with the Taliban, right, you brought the devil to the negotiating table and you tried to strike a deal, right? Which makes us Faust, I guess, in the analogy. We sold our soul. But, you know, there are points in that negotiation where the Taliban said, hey, you know, we're not going to be this as destructive. We're not going to be as murderous. We're not going to be as uh, oppressive of women. We're not going to be. So in my mind, which they're already sort of straying from that rhetoric, but in my mind, if there's a ray of hope yet, maybe it is that with the passage of time, they become a little bit more, uh, I guess, lenient on their people. They are not as oppressive as they were before. They're not as murderous. Maybe they even want to uh, sort of move in the direction of like Hezbollah which is like legitimize themselves as a political party, which Hezbollah, right, you know, without getting into that, legitimize right. themselves as a political party and say, hey, we actually want to govern Afghanistan um, rather than being this radical organization that eventually down the line causes us to have to re-engage in Afghanistan in a military way. So I guess if I was looking for a ray of light in the short term, that would be it. Hopefully they sort of come around and are not the destructive terrorist type force that they were. Now I say that, uh, again, really just, this is me reaching for the the silver right. lining in the cloud right. here when all is lost. Um, but I think that at least would give us some inroads, a route to negotiate, uh, to make things more diplomatic again, because I think again, going back to the political expediency, I think if you were to tell the American people, Hey, we got to start sending people back to Afghanistan. Hey, there's terrorist groups that are reforming, reorganizing. We're afraid of domestic uh, attacks on on our soil, and we're going to have to start militarily intervening again in Afghanistan. There is just no appetite for it. Not with the average civilian layperson. Not in the Beltway. Yeah. Certainly yeah. not. I think in the upper echelons of the military, nobody wants to reattack that. So, um, you know, I think one of the things that is the most disheartening about this is because it's really hard for me to believe that the Taliban is going to come around or that there's going to be some sort of diplomatic negotiation down the road. Um, But, you know, keep my fingers and toes crossed for that. Paul, what do you think? What would be the best piece of news you could get about Afghanistan this week? That the Taliban preemptively surrender and give back the country. (laughs) (laughs) That's some blue sky thinking. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I like it. I like where it's at. right, Right now, the focus ought to be on the evacuations and, um, one thing I've noted that deeply worries me, the Taliban are allowing American citizens through the lines uh, into Kabul airport, uh, apparently under an agreement with the U.S. government. Um, they're not, to my knowledge, they're not allowing the Afghans in, which means that there's tens of thousands of Afghan refugees trying to get out of the country. These are the people who worked with us and they're human rights ad- advocates and they're religious minorities and they're not being allowed out. So uh, the good news I want to see is that the Taliban start to let them through the lines to the airport as well. Uh, because otherwise... We'll get the American citizens out. And then the State Department, the Defense Department, they're going to say, we got no one else to evacuate. We're going to leave because the airport's empty and no one else is coming in. Goodbye. And we're going to leave and abandon 80,000, 90,000 Afghan refugees. And that'll be, uh, what I'm saying is the worst might be yet to come. We saw the chaos last week, but the worst might be yet to come after we leave and there's even more refugees. You asked for a good news story here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I'm saying, I want to see, yeah, yeah, I want to see the Taliban let the refugees through. They have no reason to, but that's what I want and I pray for. But that's what's happening. I mean, I think, Paul, what you just said jives with what I've been hearing from the guys I know who are working one-on-one trying to get this done. And in that network, they're talking about the photos they're being sent of their interpreters, their children, their wives dead in the street. It's already happening. It's already done. And, and I think that, 
and and I'm sorry that 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 these stories are staying within that tight inner circle because I don't have those that pull to get that into the mainstream media to get that to the regular civilian public. But part of what I was saying this week in Havoc Journal was a plea to the service members with firsthand knowledge of this, like, hey, I know your inclination right now is to turn inwards and talk to people who understand, but the people who don't understand you and have no firsthand experience of this need to hear your deepest, most personal information right now. And that sucks. That's a hard thing. I know it's hard for guys to share, but those stories of, hey, this is my interpreter, his family. Do you want to see his child dead? Because they have, I mean, the the photos are going straight to the guys. It's horrifying. Uh, Those atrocities, I think some moral burden, some piece of those atrocities needs to be put in front of the faces of people who have pull on on the politicians and it can't just be those of us who never liked these politicians to begin with it has to be the people who put them in there in office no you're right i'm gonna do the uh mclaughlin group thing and 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 leave on on my own editorial note but i i agree it would be i think the the best news i could get this week about afghanistan is that joe biden realizes that his commitment his stated commitment to human rights has a natural marriage with our national security in Afghanistan and reverses course and discovers moral courage where there shouldn't be any and says, I know the American people don't understand this, but I'm the leader and I will message this so you do understand it. And I will continue to message and I will continue to explain why I'm doing this unpopular thing of sending people back in to seize Bagram, to seize the airfields and to get everybody out. That would be my blue sky scenario. Um, fingers crossed. And um, <clears throat> we'll see. Uh, you know, thoughts and prayers. Anyway, it seems crass at this moment to pivot into raw, rank capitalistic commercialism, but we're going to. So, Alice, let, let, let me soften, let me soften the, the, the plug aspect of it by setting this up. Charlie Faint and I, uh, owner of Havoc Journal, who everyone listening to this should know him intimately at this point. Let me rephrase, not intimately, but uh, they should know him very well at this point from having been on so many times. We talk all the time how important it is for veterans to be writing and to be putting their stories out there. To Alice's last point, publicizing stories that the the public should know about. Um, If you are thinking about writing a book, you could do a lot worse than talking to Alice Atalanta. So Alice, tell us about why people might be interested in just hitting you up just to talk through maybe what's going on inside their heads. For that very reason, I think so many people I work with tell me how therapeutic that process is because when you take whatever's going on inside your head and you try to make that fit that into what we know about how to tell a story, you have to figure out what that means or you have to find meaning in adversity. You have to, you're naturally going to dig for that silver lining. You're naturally going to look for the growth that came out of, of what you've gone through. Um, there's so many, there are so many positives. And I think I can't state strongly enough how I feel that narrative and literature is so important for um, convincing and, and making a social change because we can't always rationalize every single thing that's meaningful and every single thing that's true. Sometimes your subjective experience is far more powerful in the hands of someone who cares about you in terms of affecting change in their mind than any well-reasoned rhetorical uh, case that you could make would ever be. I couldn't agree more. Obviously, we'll put uh, all the links in the show notes, but Alice, uh, just so everybody listening can hear right now, where can they find you? 
I would prefer if you found me on Instagram. So it's um, Alice Atalanta, PhD. Um, and uh, feel free to shoot me a DM on there. I've got a website too, aliceatalanta.com, but I don't always check the the submissions. So you can go there to learn more about me and what I do. But if you hit me up on Instagram, I'd love to talk to you and just have you bounce ideas off me. Or if there are things you want to educate me on, if there's things I need to know, stories I need to know, perspectives I need to shape, because I'm only useful as this conduit between the military and the civilian communities. If people continue to be generous with me in terms of educating me on what they feel that I need to help other civilians understand. Paul, both your books seem incredibly appropriate today. I don't know if there's one you want to talk about more than the other, but um, maybe I'll just pimp you out and start with with uh, the the latest American Power and Liberal Order: A Conservative International's Grand Strategy. Uh, what do you want to tell us about that? So that book uh, came out about five years ago, and if um, you know, so I've been talking about Afghanistan here. We've been talking about Afghanistan for the last hour. Take the kind of the worldview approach of what we've been talking about, apply it to the entire world, and that's what that book is about. It's my mm-hmm. effort at sketching out American grand strategy. How, what role should we play in the world, and why? And then, then break it down by a region and every country. Uh, sub- some of it's outdated now, right? The whole, you can skip the part about Afghanistan, right? <laughs> uh, but I hope most of it holds up the first half, especially. Is um, there a and, new edition that you would put out with, with Afghanistan updates? Uh, I, you know, I was actually thinking about emailing the publisher. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. So to see if they'd be interested in that. Uh, so there's that book. And, and actually the, 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 the truly most recent one just came out a few weeks, a few months ago. Um, and it's on uh, just war theory for anybody who likes to uh, learn about just war. I wrote a book on that. It's called just war and ordered Liberty. Uh, it's a, it's, it's, it's a book of intellectual history and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. If, if you like that kind of stuff, um, it, that's the book for you. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Paul D Miller two. Don't forget the two Paul D Miller two. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah. And gee, if people want to find you, they can just fuck up really bad in a way that uh, NSW has to deploy and you'll find them. Yeah, exactly. I, actually, I, I don't have anything to pitch really, but I do want to say, you know, in the wake of all of this, there's been a, a pretty big outpouring of support, I think, for service members who did service in Afghanistan, who, you know, whether it was one deployment or multiple deployments, there's been a lot of people saying, hey, your service mattered. And, uh, you know, from a service member perspective, I just like to say we really appreciate all that outpouring of support. If you know somebody who served in Afghanistan, reach out to them, let them know their service mattered, the time they spent over there, if they lost friends, all of that mattered. It wasn't for nothing. Um, you know, we made a difference over there. If, if for no other reason than we kept the terrorists at bay for 20 years um, over there. So hopefully the ending is a little bit brighter than what it looks like right now. But like I said, reach out to service members that you know. Give them a pat on the back. Let them know that their service mattered. I can't think of a better way to end that episode. That's a great point and great point that it was 20 years without a major terrorist attack. That's also worth noting. Gee, thanks a million. And G, Paul, Alice, thank you guys all for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. I really enjoyed it. Great thank conversation. You. Yeah. Great thanks so much, Chris. And to everyone else, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. If you're on iTunes, your five-star review would be incredibly welcome. You can say whatever you want. You can give us constructive criticism, questions, comments, snide remarks. We welcome all of it. If you could just do us a favor and attach it to a five-star review, that would be outstanding because the metrics do matter. There will be show notes. There will be plenty of show notes on things that we've talked about, uh, websites, Instagram accounts, all the rest of it, Any anything that we referenced in the show uh, that I can find 
uh, will be in the show notes. And that, those show notes will be at theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Again, that's theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Or they will be in my accompanying article at Havoc Journal that I write for each one of these episodes. So you go to Havoc Journal, check out that article and see the show notes there. Or you can just scroll down wherever you're listening to this podcast and you'll see them right there as well. There will also be alibis for anything that I misstated, misremembered, uh, something that needed more context, anything that causes me to wake up at two in the morning and go, why the hell did I say it like that when I meant to say this? Um, so for all, there will be alibis if I have any of those. That also applies to our guests who can always email me or call me or let me know if there's anything they wanted to restate or rephrase or needed some other context. Generally, nobody takes me up on that because generally I'm the only one that brain farts in an order of magnitude that requires me to cover my own ass with an alibi afterwards. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to G, Dr. Alice Atalanta, and Dr. Paul D. Miller. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos. We'll see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Thanks everyone for coming on. And I, I really hope this is not the last time I see you guys. Alice, I, I know it won't, but gee, Paul, um, I really hope we can have you guys back. Um, yeah. That was outstanding. I know it's a lot to pack into an hour. So thanks yeah. for doing it. Paul, thanks for filibustering long enough also while I was going through a coughing fit. Um, I really appreciate <laughs> that. That worked out astonishingly well.